During our recent mission to the Von Boom space station, we were exposed to as yet unidentified radioactive energy. We do not know much more than you do at this point. A new day is done. The day of the Fantastic Four. It's movie reviewing time. With now playing's Fantastic Four retrospective series. There'll be an explanation for this. There's always a scientific explanation for everything. Part of the now playing Marvel comic movie series. This is going to be fun. Hosted by our fantastic movie reviewers, Stuart. When have I ever asked you to do something you absolutely said you could not do? Five times. I had it at four. Well, this makes five. Jacob. We're either all in this together or we don't move. And Arnie. Now we're more like the terrific three. Come to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as they review each Fantastic Four film, from the unreleased Roger Corman original to the rise of the Silver Surfer. Now picture that, but everything. But be warned, these podcasts contain spoilers, mild language, and cosmic rays that may mutate your DNA. Listener discretion is advised. Susan? Let's not fight. No, let's. Today we're discussing Fantastic Four, starring Johan Griffith, Jessica Alba, Michael Chiklis, Chris Evans, and Julian McMahon. Directed by Tim Story. I'm Arnie, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in LA. And this is Jacob. And ladies, it's true. I can't expand any part of myself, except maybe my tolerance for really awful movies. <laughs> I'm surprised it took us to the second podcast to get to the penis joke. And I was actually so proud of us. We went through the entire first movie with no dick jokes. And then I'm watching Fantastic Four and I'm like, oh, they made the dick joke. And we took the high road. And Jacob, there we go. Well, you know, uh, dick jokes. I I did a whole Philip K. Dick retrospective. Dick is always on the mind. And we are here discussing not the Fantastic Four, but Fantastic Four, the 2005 film to bring Marvel's first family to the silver screen, finally, after that last aborted film. The real one, basically. The one that you don't have to go into a dark alley to get a copy of. And what a long time coming. I mean, even more than X-Men, they have been trying to get this one together. I would dare say that this, maybe only Spider-Man, was more anticipated in making his big theatrical debut, or at least by the people who own the rights. I understand the Fantastic Four's place in comic book history, but I don't know a lot of John Q. public that was aching for this film. Yes, Spider-Man, I can understand. X-Men. Those had expanded further than the comic books. Fantastic Four, though? I didn't hear a lot of cry for anyone to see them on the silver screen. I agree with you. I'm not talking about demand. I'm talking about the urge to produce. (laughs) This has been in the works since 1983. It took them over 20 years to achieve a real, legitimate, theatrically released Fantastic Four. You know, I was excited for this. I'll be honest. I was there opening weekend in 2005. I mean, keep in mind, I'm the comic movie guy. And when it comes to comics, Marvel's my favorite. Now, I mentioned last time, I don't really see the appeal of Fantastic Four. When I was collecting comics, I think the only Fantastic Four issues I bought, and I I kid you not, this really happened. There were a series of issues where the Fantastic Four got kidnapped, and they were replaced by the Fantastic Four of Ghost Rider, Spider-Man, Hulk, and Wolverine. So awesome. Yeah, that's a Fantastic Four movie I want. (laughs) And those were the only issues. I just don't get necessarily the appeal of the Fantastic Four. But, I mean, I had read issue number one. It's where the whole Marvel Universe started was there. So I was familiar with them. They were in a lot of crossovers. 
But because of the superhero movies, specifically the Marvel movies, even more specifically X-Men and Spider-Man up until this point, I was like, Fantastic Four, I'm there. I was jazzed. I was excited. I was really looking forward to this film. I didn't see it. I didn't want to. No interest. Uh Uh-uh. And keep in mind, I was going to see X-Men things, and this felt like a tween placeholder until we could get X3. I kind of saw this as... a. Parallel, this is to X-Men what Predator is to Alien. It's like if they could put out an X-Men film every year, they would because of revenue, but they couldn't. So I think that Fox really hoped that this could be their alternate so that they'd have two comic book cash cows that they could just put out to pasture every summer. You aren't wrong. Fox had a release date before they had a finalized script or a director. They finally got the rights worked out. And they finally said, enough monkeying around, X2 had been a blockbuster, and immediately after the summer of 2003, they said, we're going to release Fantastic Four in 2005. Who's going to do it? It doesn't matter. We're (laughs) going to get it made. This is the Fox ethos. We have a release date. Now make it happen. I never saw this film when it came out in the movie theaters. This is my first time seeing it. I've watched maybe 10 minutes of it on FX that plays superhero movies every 30 minutes, it seems. <laughs> this is the first time I sat down and watched the whole thing because, yes, I've read the comic books. I don't know. Maybe you nailed it, Stuart, with your tween reference. There's something that just didn't seem quite right when I saw the trailers. It didn't seem to have the seriousness of Singer's X-Men. It seemed much more light and fluffy from the trailers. But, Jacob, you've read... Fantastic Four comics, aren't they kind of light and fluffy? I mean, isn't it kind of a comedic comic? The original stuff, the 60s stuff, everything was like that. A year before this came out, Marvel kicked off the ultimate Fantastic Four, where they really rebooted it because these Marvel movies were getting to be so popular. They were rebooting the comics in this separate universe where they were updated, they're more contemporary. And I actually liked it. They were teenagers, uh, very smart, brilliant teenagers. And it was a different spin on the Fantastic Four. You know, it it was similar in roots, but a different angle. And and the funny thing is, X-Men originally was a copy of the Fantastic Four. Maybe this ultimate Fantastic Four was a bit of a copy of the X-Men, where they try to take some of the angst of having these superpowers and put it into teenagers, maybe a copy of Generation X, heaven (laughs) forbid. But I read the ultimate Fantastic Four for quite a while, and it was a more serious take, and I enjoyed that. And so I figured maybe... If they could have tapped into that, they could have a successful movie. But when I saw these trailers, they were going back to, what was it, the the, the thing ring or whatever that cartoon was. I mean, that's what it seemed like they were tapping into from what I saw with the promotions of this movie. I honestly don't remember the promotions that much. I just remember overall, you know, being kind of on a Spider-Man buzz. And this had a very slick Spider-Man-like look to it. I just kind of felt like this could be a real fun time at the theaters. And I mean, let's look at 2005 in theaters. This was not obviously my A-list movie of 2005. That was Revenge of the Sith. But also that year we had Batman Begins. We had Elektra. So given the way superheroes were, this was kind of where I was putting my hopes. Well, yeah, Batman Begins was a game changer. And this was definitely going off of that Spider-Man Marvel. Very slick looking, very family friendly. The crowds all standing around cheering on the superhero. Yes, it very much had that Marvel aesthetic from the beginning of the new millennium. And I'd also like to point out, Marvel was a bit on the ropes at this point. Sure, they had Spider-Man, and that was an unequivocal success. And yes, X-Men 2 had upped the ante, and now non-comic book people were screaming for a third X-Men. But yeah, Elektra, 
Daredevil, The Last Punisher, it wasn't like they were having a string of successes. They weren't having the kind of run they've had since they started the Iron Man franchise. This really needed to be, for Fox and for Marvel, to be another, if not a home run, then at least a double. And it's kind of interesting to me because I was looking at one of the writers, Michael France, had written Ang Lee's Hulk, the 2004 Punisher, and then this Fantastic Four. So I'm surprised that for your huge hundred million dollar hopeful blockbuster, you go with the guy who did Ang Lee's Hulk. Well, we'll talk about that when we get to the Hulk. Yeah. Well, I'm just saying straight box office. Hulk disappointed. Disappointment is, uh, you're right. That's probably the right word. You're right. It disappointed. It did not lose money. It still made a ton of money. But I'm as guilty of this as anybody, but I don't know that you can hold up somebody's writing resume and say for sure, well, this guy has no talent. This guy is a Marvel guy. They go, he turns in a draft, but it should be pointed out, there have been at least 15 to 20 people working on the script for Fantastic Four, and the two people that are credited with it are only two out of a long line. They're not even the last ones to do a polish on it. This like many of the superhero franchises, are done by committee. And I don't think Avi Arad and Fox Studios aren't armchair quarterbacking some of this as well. I mean, the writers play a part in it, but what ends up on screen is not necessarily what was on the page. You mentioned the first writer had done some other Marvel movies. Who was the second one that got credit for this? Mark Frost. I remember that name well. Wait. Twin Peaks, Mark Frost? Yes. And Hill Street Blues. I know Twin Peaks because they have it on Netflix Instance. I've been reliving the television series. It's fresh in my mind. I don't remember any little people dancing in red rooms in this Fantastic Four. Where was the Mark Frost influence? Having seen Fantastic Four, Stuart, I'm going to turn to you. Was all the talent behind Twin Peaks just Lynch? <laughs> no, absolutely not. Mark Frost is a talented TV writer. Like I said, he did Hill Street Blues. He's worked in television. He continued. I don't believe much from the Mark Frost draft is actually still here. His name's on this, but I kind of followed this project all the way back from the Corman to see who had been doing what. And Mark Frost was the third to the last guy to work on it. Here's what I can say, though. He did a commentary on the track, talked about all the writing decisions, talked about his challenges in getting these scenes. He was sitting on this DVD talking about his writing of the whole thing beginning to end. Sure. Yeah, I mean, he's credited. I mean, if you had to arbitrate this as who made this, he would be one of the two writers. But initially, as we talked about when we talked about Corman, Chris Columbus wanted to do this bad. And I mean real bad. Like, he spent years developing this story all through the mid-90s. He was focused after he had done Mrs. Doubtfire and the first two Home Alone movies that this was going to be his return to sort of the Goonies, some of the stuff that he had written in the 80s. And he probably would have done it if Spielberg hadn't relinquished the rights to Harry Potter and said he wasn't going to make Harry Potter. And so he said, okay, and hopped onto that franchise instead. But for much of the 90s, this was going to be a Chris Columbus project. And there was about five writers that worked with him to get that done. From that point on, Fox kind of went with whatever was going. At one point, it was going to be the guy that did Big Mama's House and Scooby-Doo. And the thought was, we'll make it jokey and winky. And it was a real comedy. And then after that, they brought in some people involved with the Buffy TV series and bring it on. And their take was it was going to be a reality TV kind of thing. That was the draft that Mark Frost kind of started to work on. The whole idea that it was dealing with celebrity and superheroes. And they actually said the reference point was the Beatles' A Hard Day's Night. 
Kind of weird, huh? And they brought in other people. The guys that wrote X2, they brought them in. Zach Penn, I think he's written a lot on the Marvel movies. They brought him in. It really was done so much by committee. France, the other guy, came in and out of it. I don't know who we can ultimately say came with what. I know this much. When they finally announced the date in 2003, Tim's story was coming out off of the success of Barbershop. He wasn't necessarily known as an action director. He was working on a movie that hadn't come out yet that was an action movie. Yes, I've seen Taxi. Oh, he did Taxi? That's not an action movie. I'm just thinking, had the studio seen Taxi, perhaps he wouldn't have been given Fantastic Four. Both were Fox movies, but I agree with you. If Taxi had come out and done what it was going to do, they probably would have moved right along. But they had a deadline. They felt good about this guy. He was playing for the home team, and he seemed to get the comedy. And the thought was... Story said, we can just pick the best stuff from all of the drafts and just make it work. And then I'll surround myself with all these technicians, you know, the Marvel people. They'll get all the action. They'll get all the effects. The thought really was, is that if this guy can focus on the characters and the performances, the rest of the movie will fall into place because he's surrounded by professionals that know how to do big budget action superhero. And hey, that worked for Kirshner when he did Empire Strikes Back. He left all the special effects action stuff to Lucas and he did the serious stuff. And, you know, emotional movie, just, I don't know, maybe like this one. Yeah. No, I mean, it's an interesting theory. And I'll say this much. I think it's a brave choice to say we're not going to go with a music video veteran. We're not going to go with the slick, obvious person you always go for dumb action junk. We're going to go with a guy who's made his rep on lighthearted ribbing and heckling and really a character piece. It's an interesting idea that they could turn the Fantastic Four into the barbershop. I would pay good money for that movie. It was where they were headed when they signed Story to this project. And it isn't necessarily what they ended up with, but it's closer to Barbershop than it is to X-Men. Let me put it that way. So, Arnie, how about a plot summary? Okay. Reed Richards is brilliant with science, but not with money. He's discovered a cloud of cosmic radiation coming towards Earth and theorizes that a cloud such as this may have triggered evolution on Earth and created all life. But when NASA refuses Reed's request to go to space, he's forced to turn to former MIT classmate and frenemy Victor Von Doom, a billionaire who's made his money in defense contracts and whose company owns a space station perfect for Reed's use. After bending Reed over for 75% of all profits made from this research, Victor agrees to allow Reed to go to space, accompanied by Victor himself and Sue Storm, Victor's head of genetic research and Reed's former flame, and Victor's current one. While Reed wanted his friend and former astronaut Ben Grimm to fly the ship to space, Victor insists the ship be piloted by Sue's brother Johnny, a former Air Force pilot and extreme sports guy who, under Ben's command, was kicked out of the Air Force for sneaking underwear models into a flight simulator. In space, Ben is placing flowers for Reed's experiment, and Victor is using his station's impressive observatory as a place to propose to Sue when the cloud arrives several hours ahead of schedule. Doom locks himself in behind the ship's shields, while Sue, Johnny, and Reed attempt to save Ben from a spacewalk. They get Ben just in time, but the cloud washes the station with radiation, changing Reed, Johnny, Sue, and Ben, giving them their iconic Fantastic Four powers, and also changing Victor. Back on Earth, Ben turns into the thing and is immediately dumped by his fiancée, who cannot deal with his rocky appearance. Contemplating suicide on the Brooklyn Bridge, Thing attempts to save another suicidal person whose fear of Ben causes a multi-car pileup and explosion. The Fantastic Four use their powers to save lives from the explosion and are immediately hailed as heroes in the media. 
Johnny, ever the personality, enjoys the adulation and uses it to score more hot chicks and marketing agreements, pissing off the other members of the group. But Reed and Sue research a cure for themselves, specifically for Ben, who's finding solace in the arms of blind sculptress Alicia Masters. But Reed's failure in space is having negative impacts for Victor as well. The bad publicity tanked his IPO and his loans are recalled by the bank. Not only is Victor losing his company, but he's also losing his hair and skin as his body turns strangely metallic and he has the power to shoot electricity from his hands. Victor dons a metal mask given to him as an award to hide his scarred face and goes on a murderous rampage with the thought of gaining more power, but realizes the Fantastic Four have the ability to stop him. He secretly becomes Ben's confidant and, using his electricity power, makes Reed's machine function to turn Ben human. With the strongest of the four gone, he takes Ben and Sue captive, and the remaining three try to stop Doom unsuccessfully. So Ben goes back into the machine and turns back into the thing, and the four together team up to stop Doom by superheating his body, then rapidly cooling it, turning Doom into a statue. With the four now accepting their powers and their roles as superheroes, Reed proposes to Sue and Doom is shipped back to his native country, Latveria. Now, guys, there are two cuts of this movie, and I watched them both for this. Arnie, ever the trooper you are, taking one for the team. (laughs) So I'll be here to bring up any important changes between the two. Now, with this plot summary... Am I the only one who thought this had a striking resemblance to Corman's film? I thought the same thing. It kind of laid out the same way, you know, they updated some things, which I liked, but I did notice a lot of similarities. Uh, well, you're catching my complete review right at the gate, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, when you boil it all down, for all the exponential more money, time, and energy they poured into this one, I wouldn't say it's particularly that much better than what Corman did. Oh, I didn't say it's the same quality. I'm just saying the same storyline. Like, I realize it's based on a comic book. And Jacob, maybe you can tell me how much is just slavish devotion to the comic's origin story and how much is unique. But to me, a cosmic cloud that comes by Earth every once in a while has radiation. Reed's doing an experiment. The experiment's going wrong. Scars Victor. They go back to Earth and are examined by Victor's doctor. It all just kind of, especially the first half of the movie, plus the fact that it ends with them against Doom, it just seemed to be kind of a mirror, mirror universe of the Corman film without the wonderful jeweler. It's the law of Hollywood. It's like you can spend 11 years developing a project and have 20 different writers, 10 different directors, lots of different actors come in and out of it. And at the end of the day, you pretty much end up with what you started out with. (laughs) It's just kind of like for all of that development and time and energy, you know, it should be said that same company that held on the rights and made that bogus Carmen version to keep the rights, I don't think they got a better movie for all of their waiting of the time. I mean, sure, of course, I'm not a fool. I'm not Alicia. I can see the difference (laughs) in the special effects, but I don't think that that special effects gives it a free pass to say it's so much better. In fact, it makes me think, for all of your extra money and time, you couldn't do anything better than what Corman did? Well, look, in the original comic, they sneak into a spaceship, go up into space where they're berated with cosmic rays that give them their powers. They crash land very much like Corman's. If you're going to put the film in 2005, it's going to be about sneaking off into space so we could beat the Reds. No, they got to update it. They had to update it for Corman's, too, in 94. They had to come up with something. Yes, they got to build up that relationship between Doom and the Fantastic Four. I mean, it's like if you're going to do a Superman movie, especially if you're going to reboot Superman, the villain's going to be Lex Luthor. 
character. That's just how it's got to be in Hollywood. I'm not going to get down on them too much because they have Doom as the villain. It makes sense. They had to come up with some way to get into this cosmic radiation. It was when they were being examined by Victor's doctors that I was really like, wow, we are right there. This time, though, they knew it was Victor's doctors. I mean, that was the big twist, I guess, in Corman's. <laughs> but I don't know. For me, it made sense. I'm not getting down on it at this point. I want to say I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying that there are striking similarities that go beyond my knowledge of the origin story and into the plot. The fact that the same experiment is what caused Doom's anger towards Reed and his jealousy and everything. That isn't in the comic. Do you want Doom to be scarred because he's trying to meld black magic and science together? I mean, that's how it happens in the comic. Do you want some black magic thrown in into the film here? I mean, we could go that way. This movie's wacky. I'd go for it. This movie is bug nuts, to use Stuart's phrase. I mean, you're sort of getting into deeper-seated problems I have as a non-comic book person, which is, yeah, when push comes to shove, do I really want to see the robot in the hoodie fight the guy in the oversized novelty dog poo outfit? (laughs) No, I really don't. I don't want to see this at all. You're right. You caught me. I'm not sold on this concept. I don't think the Fantastic Four are that fantastic. What are you not sold? Because it sounds like even if they did this movie well, you might have problems with it, Stuart, because you don't like the characters. Is that what it is? Yeah, that's pretty much it. Yep. What don't you like? They are just square individuals. I think that the superhero characters that I have related to have a more contemporary gritty edge. You know, this certainly isn't Nolan's Batman, and I can accept that, but I just tend to gravitate towards characters that have some weight to them. They're going the opposite way. They're saying, this is weightless. We're making it for kids, and that only works if it's funny. I don't think they were making this for kiddies. I think they might have been making this for earlier teens. It was PG-13 rated. I think that their mission statement was just to try to get away from the brooding superheroes and try to show fun superheroes, you know, back like Superman in... 79. Yeah, I totally agree with you. That was absolutely what they wanted to do. There's been a lot of dark, gothic superheroes since Tim Burton's Batman. We want to bring back 70s Richard Donner's Superman. Even Spider-Man, for all of his patriotic sheen that is in the 2002 movie, he has some pathos. The whole reason he does what he does is out of guilt over his uncle's death. Here, these are just basically the rock stars of superhero Let me ask you guys this, because again, it sounds like maybe you just have problems with the characters, period. But the year before, Pixar comes out with The Incredibles, which, let's face it, was the Fantastic Four. You had an invisible girl, you had someone that stretched, you had a really strong guy, you had a baby that could set himself on fire. I was screaming from the rafters that that was a Fantastic Four ripoff. But it's light. Either that or Wally are number one when it comes to Pixar for me. I mean, Stuart, you hate The Incredibles too because it's too light and fluffy. They're not brooding the whole time. No, I totally agree with you. That movie was a total surprise. It's actually my favorite Pixar movie. I did not expect to like it and I did not want to see it, but somebody forced me as they have to usually to watch animated movies. And I was really surprised at how much heart and realism to it. Yeah, I don't think these characters can be that fantastic. But then you look at something in Incredibles and you're like, well, maybe it's all about how you approach it. I don't know. Maybe if they had had the minds behind Pixar working on Fantastic Four, it wouldn't have felt so blah. Well, why don't we go through the characters? Because it seems like for Stuart, one of the big problems is the characters. And I'd kind of like to look at how each was portrayed here and whether or not 
looking at the premise that's been stated so far, whether or not they could work in film. Is it the concept is bad or is it that the portrayal here is bad? And we'll start with their leader, Mr. Fantastic, played by Horatio Hornblower, Johan Griffith. I have no clue who Horatio Hornblower is. Can somebody tell me who Horatio Hornblower is? Uh, it's some kind of seafaring tale. They made a couple miniseries on it. It's a literary character. It was supposed to be pretty good. But I think I've seen this guy maybe in exactly one movie other than this. He was the Tony Blair character in Oliver Stone's goof on George W. Bush, the W movie. Very bit part. And he kind of looked the part, but he didn't have to do too much acting. I don't know. He's plastic. They got that right. He's a pretty uh, Teflon character. Yeah, maybe because I'm more familiar with the comic book characters. He comes off as aloof. He looks like Reed Richards from the comic. I mean, again, whether they write him a good role, that's one thing. His appearance works for me. His aloofness and, like you said, his kind of blandness, it matches how the character is. So at least at the beginning, he's working for me. All I can do is list off some of the other people that were listed to this role prior to that. I would love to know that because I've never seen this guy before. I haven't seen him since. He seems shocking for me as the lead of a blockbuster superhero film. Yeah. I mean, the one that made kind of the most sense in some ways was George Clooney in the early part of 2000. He's the leader. This guy, you know, George Clooney is the star. You, you can have who's who of Hollywood in Ocean's movies, but George Clooney is still going to be your leader. And he just says that, but I'm sure that Clooney was a little bandit shy after <laughs> Batman and Robin. I was wondering if the Fantastic Four would have nipples on him if he'd been in it. No, you know, I think by this point, George Clooney only makes movies that George Clooney wants to see. And I don't think that he does superhero anymore. It's funny because when Arnie, when you asked who else would, could have done this role, George Clooney was the first that came to mind, which... Yes, he has the presence. You could throw out the one-liners and be quirky and funny. I don't know if that necessarily matches the character. Maybe they do need to pull away from the character, though, to make this interesting, how the character is in the comic. I don't know that Clooney necessarily exudes brains. I mean, it's kind of funny to me that they went to a Brit to be smart and then took away his accent. But by the same token, Clooney seems more age-appropriate. One of the problems I have with this group of Fantastic Four, they're all about the same age. They're like within five years of each other. And that is not the Fantastic Four I knew or that we saw in the last movie. You wanted pedophile Richards. I didn't want pedophile Richards, but I actually wanted Richards to be a little bit older, a little bit more seasoned, a little bit more learned. And I wanted Johnny to be a little bit younger. You know, I didn't want all of them to be adults in their prime well then let me ask you this how about gabriel byrne because that was chris columbus's choice in the 90s hmm. right after usual suspect you know that guy does brooding he seems smart and he seems humorless so it would definitely be i would think a darker less well goofy performance i guess i, I cannot picture him in this movie because this movie is goofy putting him in there it could have been great if he's one of those actors like maybe Robert De Niro, who you don't realize that him deadpanning his usual performance is comedic in the right vehicle, or if Gabriel Byrne would have just been completely in a different movie than everybody else. I'll tell you who my dream cast would have been in this, and it's kind of obvious, but it would have been perfect, and that's Jim Carrey. I mean, who's more plastic and bendable than Jim Carrey? It totally allows for him to do what he did in The Mask and be a live-action cartoon. And more to the point, if they had finally pitted him against Bruce Campbell as Victor Von Doom, the movie might have actually worked, even with this script. Battle of the Chins? 
Yeah. Which Jim Carrey do you want on here? Do you want the mask? I could go with his more subdued, you know, the Truman Show or Eternal Sunshine Carrey. I don't want the mask Carrey in this film. As goofy as this is, I mean, now we're getting into Generation X level if we're going for the mask Jim Carrey. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking the same thing. The thought of Jim Carrey as Reed Richards, who, from what I know and what this cadre needs is someone serious. You know, they need somebody to have some levity to them. Not everyone can be jokey. And even in this comedy film, Mr. Fantastic was perhaps the least jokey of the group. And I think Carrie would have needed to completely change the whole dynamics of the cast and had everybody around him be serious in order to give a superhero movie any weight. It's what they did in Batman Forever. Everybody else was serious except for Riddler. Mm, that's not how I remember it, but okay. <laughs> we'll get to that at some point. <laughs> I think next year that will get settled. <laughs> of the names you listed, Clooney would be best, but of course that's dream casting right there. That's double your budget casting. I just don't know that this guy was right. He comes off a bit young for me, a bit inexperienced, and at no point do I look at him and think he's one of the greatest minds in America. It didn't even seem like they were playing him that way in the film. I mean, he starts off this movie bankrupt or near bankruptcy, can't get anyone to finance his projects. If he's supposed to be so smart, he doesn't have a couple of patents that he's just collecting money on. I mean, I didn't get how they portrayed him as the bankrupt smartest man in the world at the beginning of this film. Bill Gates is not bankrupt. He's got lots of money. And I had that thought, too. It's like it's supposed to be implied that the battle here between Doom and Richards is that it's Gates and Jobs. And Reed is the noble one. I guess that would make him Jobs. And Gates is the Victor Von Doom. But both of these guys are too pretty and bland to really sell that. Like, I need nerds, damn it. If they're <laughs> supposed to be smart, I need nerds. As far as the bankrupt thing goes, I think that Doom says the line, you know, he's always right. He just never knows what he has. So incredibly poor businessman who has made other people rich, possibly Doom himself. And let's look at Doom. Julian McMahon, who I know from Nip Tuck. I loved Nip Tuck the first couple seasons. And when I heard he was playing Doom, that was part of the reason I was jazzed for this because he's such an asshole on Nip Tuck. I thought I want to see him play real evil. And here I looked up his resume and I think he kind of went back to his days of our lives or as the world turns days. He seemed to be in a soap opera. I know that Superman Returns came out the year after this, but for some reason, he really reminded me of Kevin Spacey's Lex Luthor. Not a lot of emotion, kind of the same tone, the delivery of his lines. I don't know if that's soap opera-like, but yes, I noticed a kind of flatness to the way he did everything. Just never got excited, just straight down the line the entire time. I don't know who this guy is, and he did nothing for me. I've never seen him before. I know he was on Charmed, too. A strange Fantastic Four relationship there. In Charmed, he played a demon. He played the human form of the demon. The demonic form of the demon was played by the guy who was the thing in the Corman film. Oh, weird. Okay. But where was Kevin Bacon? <laughs> <laughs> I guess maybe you're really getting to it here. The two central characters, the ones, the big minds battling each other, are the two least interesting in the cast. Well, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I may revise that in just a minute. There's one other one that she goes invisible for me. But for the most part, if this is supposed to be a battle of the minds, much like Magneto and Professor X were a battle of the minds and the crux of the X-Men films, these aren't the guys to anchor it. They're just not 
charismatic enough. I mean, they're handsome, but you don't look at them. I mean, they're just bland. I gotta say, it's something about McMahon's performance here, because on Nip Tuck, he was captivating. You couldn't take your eyes off of him every scene. He just ruled that series so much. And here, yeah, I think part of the problem with Fantastic Four, a superhero movie is only as good as its villain, right? What they have to overcome is what makes the heroes heroic. And here, they're overcoming him, and I, A, don't understand his entire motivation for going psychopath, or what his plan was, or what he wanted. But B, beyond that, I just didn't find him menacing. No, and we'll get into that when we talk about the way that the conflicts are set up, or not set up in the story. I do feel like that's part of what they try to do, and why the movie fails. But regardless, a really good actor can come into a role like this and make you look at him. And here, these two are not the characters I want to see on screen. Let's get to the third point of that love triangle. Maybe someone you do want to see on screen. The Invisible Girl, Jessica Alba. I want to see her. I just don't want to hear her. (laughs) Yeah, good show, guys. Cast Jessica Alba as the Invisible Girl. (laughs) Yeah. Well, look, if your entire role is going to be like, how many almost nude shots can we get of you? They could have done worse. That seemed like her whole role in this film. Besides, I don't know if it was just a bad makeup job or if they intentionally tried to CGI her skin to make her look whiter. She looked (laughs) off. I'm just going to put it out there. Her skin tone looked off. Maybe I had a bad copy of the movie. Maybe because it was a Blu-ray and high def and you could see things more. I don't know. They look like they try to whiten her up in this film, which is fine. You want to change, you know, make Sue Storm into Sue Tormenta. (laughs) You know, change her to Latin. That's fine. You know, her race doesn't have anything to do with her ability or anything like that. Just let her be Latina, though. Don't try to whiten her skin. I, I don't know. Did you guys notice that, or is that just me? It's the hair. Jacob, it's the hair is the problem. Is that what it was? Okay. Obviously, Jessica Alba is a very pretty woman. She looks terrible with this blonde job. She does. It's terrible. Yeah. It's just not flattering. It's not flattering to her skin tone. It's not flattering the haircut. All of it, it's failing her. And here's my thing with Jessica Alba, and it's much like what I said about Megan Fox when we did our Transformers retrospective. Really attractive. I'd buy a magazine with her on the cover, but I don't want to see her act. I've seen a lot of Jessica Alba movies, and not one of them have I liked her in, honestly. She just doesn't have range or presence. I just don't think she's a very good actress. Is this the only non-romantic comedy she's done? Because when I try to think back on what other films she's done, all I can think of is romantic comedies. Let me tell you the two that come to mind first, and then the others that I saw on IMDb. But when I think of her, the worst film I've ever seen her in is Awake, the Hayden Christensen movie, where she's the duplicitous wife wife planning his heart failure okay i missed it please continue to miss it (laughs) Uh, no problem got it and then the film that she's bothered me least in was machete where it's very famous that they cgi'd nudity on her because she's a very modest girl who refused to do a partial nude scene so they cgi'd flesh on her and she was okay in that but for the most part it's rom-coms and the worst of the rom-coms like the love guru haven't seen it (laughs) good luck chuck i sat through the love guru i don't know how i did i tolerated about 10 minutes of good luck chuck before i turned the channel oh that one was absolutely miserable i gotta say you know what i just remembered another movie i have seen her in and it's a comic book movie and it's not rise of the silver surfer sin city yes where she plays a stripper who just dances the entire time i don't even know she speaks in the film and so i didn't mind that i would like her in more roles like that (laughs) non-speaking, almost naked roles, good. Speaking leads in superhero films, bad. 
I'm going to throw one out there in her defense. It was a little movie that came out last year called The Killer Inside Me. And I don't know if she's great in it, but she allows a non-vanity part that I've got to say is pretty shocking. She undergoes a beating few actresses would be willing to take. And she, by the end of it, is totally disfigured. So props on her for not always playing pretty. Admittedly. And I think she's maybe trying to do better. I mean, machete, but... Her early material, I think she's eye candy, and yeah, you make her the invisible woman. The only good thing is she can't make her clothes invisible in this movie, so she has to keep stripping. Which I thought was funny, because in the comic book in the 60s, they couldn't do that. That's how they originally wanted it, that she could only make her skin invisible, but they're like, we can't have her, you know, this implied nudity, even though you can't see it because of the comics code, so they just made it. She could turn whatever is touching her invisible. For me, though, I don't think they were trying to give a nod to the original concept of the Invisible Woman. It's let's get Jessica Alba naked. No, and, and Alba wasn't the only choice here. There was a lot of pretty much any young actress that was the it girl at that time. I think probably when it was George Clooney, they were looking at Renee Zellweger. I guess she's oh, a, a no. bit more comedic. I see. I keep wanting to cast comedians in this because to me, this is a jokey movie. I wouldn't want to see like a tough girl in this. I'm trying to think who could do funny like scarlett johansson's done some comedies but she's not broadly funny gwyneth paltrow won an oscar for shakespeare in love but she wasn't the funny one in it so i don't know it's tough and did you see shallow hal she ruined that film i didn't see it again a film i don't recommend you do see but my impression from the comic you've read more of them than i have i've only read a few but that is that she's very matronly she's the mom to the group and so I would have, again, liked to see somebody a little bit older, a Sigourney Weaver type who can do comedy, but also has strength. You know, that would work if they made Richards older, too. She wasn't like their grandma in the comic. Yes, she was the mother of the group. I mean, a young Sigourney Weaver. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so if they made this back in 94 when they did the Corman one, yes, maybe that would. Work. But originally, yes, she is the mom of the group, of course. Once we got into feminism in the 90s, I mean, all that stuff has been updated now where she's much more of a leader. But yes, before she was very quiet, trying to be the peacemaker and bake them cookies and that kind of thing. It's just at the end of the day, not a very well-developed role here. I mean, she's an object being fought between Doom and Richard. She doesn't have really a moment to be funny. Her one bit is that, yes, she keeps taking off her clothes, thinking she can go invisible. And then lo and behold, she's not. She's TNA here. I mean, and that's probably why Alba got the role. Well, there is another part to this character, though. She's a bitch. She is constantly complaining to everyone. She's constantly like, Reed, you never did the right things when we were dating. I'm going to henpeck you. Johnny, you're such a little brat. Why are you doing this? I can't recall a scene where she's a positive force in this film. You might have a point there. I guess maybe I related to that, but <laughs> I'm not so judgmental of her. I, I thought she was right. I think she's kind of right about Richards, for sure. I just felt like it would have been nice to see her having some fun. I agree. Her character arc should be about her coming into her powers. And as it is, it doesn't seem to bother her one way or another whether she can go invisible or not. It's whether Reeds will notice her. And then we have her brother, Johnny. Chris Evans, Captain America, Chris Evans as the Human Torch. Also, Evil X number two from Scott Pilgrim. Yes. Yep. 
And the guy with the banana in his ass in Not Another Teen Movie. Haven't seen it. <laughs> Missed it. Yeah. Yeah, Arnie, you're definitely catching all those comedies that I run away shrieking from. I usually run away shrieking after the credits roll, though. Any movie with movie in the title, I try to stay away from. Did you guys notice? Chris Evans is the reason we're doing Fantastic Four now, because he's another big screen superhero. But did you guys catch his Captain America moment in this film? No. But then again, what do I know about Captain America? It's subtle, but it's there. When Chris Evans walks in, in the very first scene, he's carrying a messenger bag for some reason with a big Captain America patch on it. I didn't even notice that. I just thought it was kind of funny. I was stunned by Jessica Alba's ugly blonde hair. So I I guess I missed the patch. (laughs) Of course, he didn't have the role at that time. That was, I'm sure he had to fight for it like all of young Hollywood. Yes, and... I'm surprised, honestly. I mean, I guess that because they're picking so many different actors to play the Hulk that they had to get him to double up. (laughs) It can happen. The guy he really reminds me of is our Mr. Green Lantern, and he had already done his tour in superhero land with Blade and X-Men. So, I mean, yeah, sometimes guys just become the comic book guy if they have the right mixture of beefcake and jocularity. I mean, he's essentially a carbon copy. Am I wrong here of what you like about Ryan Reynolds? I don't know if I go that far, but Chris Evans does work, and it worked for me even more in Scott Pilgrim, is that he's there to play the cocky douchebag. And he does that role well. I mean, he comes off as a cocky douchebag. <laughs> yeah, but I think he's a little bit relatable here, too, or at least I understand. While everyone else is, you know, arguing about you don't love me or bemoaning what's befallen them, he's the only one that wants to actually have fun. And I agree. It's like, why can't this Fantastic Four movie be more fun? I'm on his side in that debate. This should be a whole lot more of a good time than it is. Which is funny because you hated that about Ryan Reynolds. In Wolverine. But Chris Evans works for you in this. This movie is a comedy, and Chris Evans wants to have fun. That was supposed to be an X-Men movie, and everyone is obnoxious. Well, here's my thing on Chris Evans is he's kind of a stiffler in this film, isn't he? He is that douchebag that just says these things that if you were to read these lines on a page, you would think this guy is just an asshole. And you would hate him. But Chris Evans somehow delivers these lines in such a guileless way that he was my favorite part of this film when I first saw it. And the part that keeps in my mind most is he's the one you want to watch. You want to see him having fun. You want to see him get the girl. He kind of reminds me more of Tom Cruise in Top Gun than he reminds me of Ryan Reynolds in anything. When I say douchebag, I mean that in the most affectionate way possible. Yes, you do like him. He's a jerk. But he's got so much personality that you give him a pass. I was wondering if one of you might not like him because he is just such an arrogant ass. I was going with it. I was enjoying his performance, but the way it's written is unlikable. So I'm surprised. Kudos to Chris Evans for being able to pull it off. I can't imagine how you take that same kind of performance and make it Captain America. Well, you don't, and they won't. But I guess we'll find out next week, or some people will. It's an ensemble, though. I mean, you can have this kind of character when they're playing off of one another. And again, if you saw Barbershop, you've got to have this kind of character like Cedric the Entertainer, who's just going to come up with all the crazy stuff to say, where you just, like, roll your eyes and... He's the one that dares to say what others will not. So that's why you like him. He's the bold one. And he's, you know, frankly, his relationship with Ben is way more interesting than Reed and Sue and Victor. You just made this a very homoerotic (laughs) podcast, Stuart. (laughs) You and your subtext. 
the flaming guy has a really good relationship with uh, the bear. The, 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 yes, the bear. <laughs> and yes, because Ben and he have a history, which I don't like that. Because again, I think it makes them all too close in age. Michael Chiklis is the eldest statesman of the group. And Michael Chiklis, maybe I, I'm in a living in a hole watching all my terrible movies. I've never seen the commish. I've never seen the shield. No, I don't watch his TV work. The only thing I know him from is his debut. The thing that really almost cost him his whole career, Wired. He did a movie based on John Belushi and his cocaine habit, and Dan Aykroyd was so pissed at it, he had this guy blacklisted for years. I did see him, speaking of The Incredibles, in another Fantastic Four ripoff, the short-lived TV series No Ordinary Family, where he played The Thing. Yeah, he's done a long stream of TV that I haven't watched. He's kind of like, if you can't get Bruce Willis, maybe get him, you know? It's like, what Matt Frewer is to Jim Carrey, he is to Bruce Willis. I think he's a few <laughs> steps down the wrong... <laughs> he's not the second Bruce Willis you call. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying, but you know what I mean. He's bald, he's kind of built, he's all sassy, and, you know, he, he's sarcastic. Couple drinks and squint, and he'll kind of look like Bruce. You want to know why I think he got cast, and it's just something for me, is he looks to me like a younger Lawrence Tierney. And Lawrence Tierney's the actor who, in Reservoir Dogs, they say he looks just like the thing. And so I'm like, I think they just went with a young Lawrence Tierney because they say he looks like the thing without makeup. Well, actually, they went with whoever they could get when David Boreanaz walked away. David Boreanaz was going to be the thing? Yeah. Angel? Uh-huh. That doesn't work. <laughs> well, he agrees with you. <laughs> or at least he doesn't work for the salary they wanted to pay him. I have no idea why he walked. Maybe he didn't want to wear the doggy poo. I don't know, but he's not in it. And Michael Chiklis is willing to put on doggy poo. I thought they went with Chiklis because he's already bald. They don't have to worry about putting the bald cap on for the makeup. Just save themselves a couple of bucks there. And let me be clear. This is him in both roles. In the last Fantastic Four, it was two different actors. There's a stuntman and then the actor is a human. He is getting in the suit, right? He's doing the makeup. Yep. He's sitting in the yep. chair. Okay. Now, what do you guys think about them going makeup for the thing? Because at this point, the Hulk had come out. They CGI'd the Hulk. People weren't too happy with that. So they go for the rubber suit for this. And it comes out and people aren't too happy with that. It's hard to pull off comic book characters realistically. That's why they are on the comic page. They're too fantastic for reality. Neither one is totally successful, but it's not appreciably better than what was done in the Corman film, frankly. They've modulated the face. He can express himself more. There's kind of almost like a mother of pearl sheen to his... He's got, like, different colors in his rocks. It's... I mean, they tried. They've spent more money. I can see that, but I don't think that the effect is that much stronger than the $2 million Corman cheapie. Going back to when we kicked off this whole Marvel thing with Howard the Duck, what I said, what I love about comics is that anything's possible. You just got to be able to draw it. You know, you could buy it when it's drawn on a page. And the thing drawn on a page, yep, looks great. And like you said, Stuart, very hard to translate. Maybe if this was done post-Avatar and James Cameron was involved, they could get a really good-looking CGI thing. We'll talk about the Hulk when we get there. Given where CGI was then, I'm guessing they didn't have the Peter Jackson budget to do you know something to the effect of Gollum. I don't think the suit's that bad. There are times when he's wearing those tight blue pants, it looks goofy because they're just too defined. But 
I don't know. The only thing that really bugged me about the thing when he was the thing is his eyes. They didn't quite have the makeup. You know, you could still kind of see the skin under there. You could see the eyelashes looked weird. It looked weird for this big rock guy to have eyelashes. And that's what I obsessed on is that's what ruined the suit for me was the eyelashes. They should have been little pebbles. (laughs) And to get back to our original point as we were going through all the characters, I do think that it's good enough. I agree with you. I think it's just more clashing with my aesthetic. It's that all of these people standing side by side with one another just take the dumb factor too high for me. I don't buy them as a team. I don't want to see these characters as a super team. They're not totally clicking. But I will say this. I do feel like the supporting characters that Johnny and Ben are much more interesting than the central three. I do agree. And Ben has perhaps one of the best arcs of the movie in that he loses his fiance and yeah the only dramatic arc mm-hmm, where johnny is so excited and you know picking on the thing is what could push people away from johnny even further because the thing is the one we're supposed to feel sorry for and johnny's there calling him a thing asking where his ears are putting whipped cream no, no, on no, his no, face come on. yeah the shaving cream on the face that's picking on it i mean that's getting into the humor that's the stuff i didn't like if they're gonna go for a funny superhero team fine but the shaving cream trick i saw jackass it wasn't funny then when they were doing it with you know uh rat poison in the face shaving cream in the thing uh rolled my eyes at that moment as for the makeup i didn't mind the makeup i am glad they allowed chickless to show through because i thought he had some great facial expressions through the makeup you could really get emotion off of him and i think that that's talent and i don't think cgi would have been there the only time the suit bothered me is it a scene that they cut from the original theatrical cut i didn't see it till i saw that extended cut there's an erotic scene between the thing and alicia where she is does he get a boner no he doesn't get a rock hard on (laughs) she is caressing him and brushing him like a sculpture and like blowing on him it should also be said i saw that that's the extended scene it's not an extra scene they actually cut it into the movie they put over it some like new jack love ballad too it's like an <laughs> no, r&b no. love jam so like they're really selling it on the idea that we're supposed to be aroused by this moment first of all that's just creepy right there but second of all you can see the plastic bend under her touch so that really bothered me with it That was the only time that I really thought he looked rubbery. And I never thought he looked like dog poo. Not once. I never thought he looked like rock either. But what's a big giant orange creature supposed to look like? But he's not supposed to bend under the touch of a feather brush. Too bad I didn't see that scene. (laughs) Darn. It is the one scene cut in that should have been cut out. It was creepy. It wasn't the only scene, Arnie. There were several (laughs) of those extra scenes that were rightfully on the editing room floor for the theater cut. My other problem with Ben is he's supposed to be smart. I mean, all of these people are supposed to be smart, right? He's supposed to be a NASA astronaut. They're not exactly meatheads. He's hanging out with Reed. Everybody here just seemed a little bit too on Reed's intellectual level. They made Sue a geneticist. Who also knew a lot about solar winds and whatever else that she could. Like, I mean, she's booking the rocket launch. I'm like, really? You go into space too? Okay. (laughs) Is she the admin assistant? or a geneticist. I'll take care of booking that for you. Yes. Well, come on, Arnie. You wanted the matronly Sue Storm. There you go. She's also the secretary. 
I don't know. It didn't bug me. I like that it moved away from that 60s mindset where you had the jock that played football and the, the housewife and the super smart guy and the hothead teenager. I like that if you're going to get all these guys into space, at least this made more sense than... Hey, Mrs. Reed, can we take Johnny and Sue up into space with us just because? I mean, at least they had a reason here. This is very, very true. But it gave Ben virtually no reason to be there because he was supposed to be the pilot. They're like, we already have a pilot, but you can come along, I guess. Well, you always have a co-pilot. The thing is my co-pilot. Like I said, it allows for the tension to be because back in the NASA days, Ben was Johnny's boss. But now Johnny is his superior and that allows him to put down Ben and there's not much Ben can do about it. I think it works for the relationship. It's good back and forth. They're the comedy guys and that's good. So the trip to space, can you book space travel in two days even if it's privatized? It's six weeks, actually. They did it in six weeks. So, yes, there you go. That makes all the difference. Those extra couple of weeks, you know. No, no. But then again, I don't think we ought to apply realism to this. I mean, it seems to be a conscious effort that they're all tongue-in-cheek here. Everyone understands this concept is beyond far-fetched. It is stretched thinner than Mr. Fantastic at his most elastic. <laughs> it is improbable to the max. And so we just have to go with it as comedy, or at least that's my approach. I cannot treat this like a credible premise. I enjoyed that this movie was actually moving along. It's like, boom, we start off right with Doom and Richards. We get what's going on there. Next scene, boom, we're getting ready to go into space. We're getting the introduction to these suits they're going to start wearing. Boom, we're in space. I like that it was moving along. I've said before, I'm not a huge fan of origin stories. I like when stories start in the middle and they're well-crafted and use flashbacks and other character development to figure out what's going on. But if you're going to go through the origin story, let's get through this. And so I like that it was moving. It was brisk. It was giving me as much information as I needed. They do, but they don't. I mean, this whole movie is really the origin story. They get through the giving of the powers very quickly, but yet it still just felt so much like an origin with them coming to terms with their powers and learning how to use them. It seemed overly efficient at the beginning, but then it didn't jump right to them being super heroic, which might have been a little bit better because as it is, we don't get very many heroics. We get a lot of domestic squabbling. I tried to track down an earlier version of the script because there were so many hands in it. I really wanted to see if I could see other visions for what this would be. And I never could find one, but I did find one that was uh, slightly less less than what got filmed. And they had one crucial scene that I really would have liked to have seen because I think it would have actually helped Ben's conflict a little bit more. He has a moment with his wife-to-be. In that script, he gives her that ring and says, baby, when I get back, I'm going to give you a bigger rock. Not only is that a good thing, pun, but it also sets up the conflict that she isn't totally committed to him yet. She hasn't said, till death do us part, or until mutation do us part. She hasn't made that promise. And I think he needed that. I think the only reason it came out of the script was we had that same conflict going on between Sue and Victor. I 100% agree with you, Stuart, because I, what was her name, Debbie? Yeah. I just thought she was a grade A bitch. (laughs) Yeah. I'm sorry. He shows up. She knew there was some disaster in space, and she's like, Oh, 
you're not an ugly bald guy now. You're an ugly stone guy. I'm leaving you. Yeah. Like, it didn't make any sense to me at all. It, it was such a flat characterization. That it's one of the things that bugged me. She really would have tried if she was really that in love with him. I have to believe that. The idea that she would run away in revulsion and the only other time we would see her is conveniently on a bridge where all this battle is happening and she just throws the ring on the ground. She got shafted by the final rewrite. And I feel like we would understand her and not judge her if it had been filmed the way that, that I had read that script. Yeah, one of the commentaries, they said that she loved him too much to bear to see him this way. That's not how it comes off. She comes off as the shallowest woman in all of cinema history, I think. It's like, oh, you're ugly. Goodbye, lover. Yeah, so much for fairy tales. <laughs> yeah, beauty flees the beast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she got the shaft. Don't know what else to say, but she's not really a part of the team anyway, so it doesn't matter. But Thing also gets the subplot, yeah, of having a new love. He rebounds from his girlfriend with blind sculptress Alicia, which we saw Alicia in the last Fantastic Four film. Here, it's kind of upsetting, though, isn't it? The only place he can find love is in a blind girl. Love is blind, Arnie. Love is blind. It's very comic book. She's a sculptress, too. She works with, you know, uh, cement and hard things. At least she wasn't doing death masks for him in this film. <laughs> I think it's a fine comic book love story. I think it's completely acceptable. and I had no real problem with it. I completely agree with you in the theatrical cut. In the extended cut, where she's, like, obsessed with him, and her entire studio is thing sculptures, and she's wrecking her career. <laughs> oh. Because people are like, who want that thing in their house that was terrible i'm glad i didn't see that <laughs> first of all no new york artist make decides what they're going to do based on whose living room it's going to end up have you ever been to a new york art gallery show they're trying to offend people so i mean the more that you can do the better i mean this movie does not understand that scene at all you're right there is one too many scenes of her using thing as a muse but uh, you're right it should have been cut all of those extra scenes probably should have been cut but I liked their characters. I thought it was a happy resolution for Ben. There is one extra scene that I liked that should not have been cut. And Jacob, it's the one scene you'd probably wish you saw. Herbie the robot gets a cameo. What? There's an extra scene of Reed and Sue talking and they're in Reed's storage room. And what's on the shelf that Sue just stops and stares at for about 10 seconds. But Herbie the robot from the 70s cartoon when they didn't put in Human Torch because they were afraid kids would set themselves on fire. <laughs> See that? Yeah, that would have been a nice callback. It made no sense to me, but now that I know that, okay, I can get that. The rest of the scene was pretty functionless. I mean, it, the shelf ends up falling on her and he stretches and protects her and it's supposed to be a, you know, sexually charged moment and it wasn't. The thing that stuck out to me, you know, there, there's always those random things in the background. There's a shot, you know, it's not Herbie because I didn't see the extended cut, but in the theatrical cut, when Sue's getting dressed after taking a shower at the Baxter building, like on Reed's dresser, he has an autograph photo of Devo. Like, I, I got to figure, like, someone in the production crew just wanted that photo, so they siphoned some money off the budget here to get that. Like, I'm like, why is Reed Richards into Devo? Well, they do make the comment, or rather, Ben makes the comment when they finally suit up in their little blue uniforms that they look like an 80s band. Or was that not in your cut? I think it was, yeah. I think it, it was. It was in both cuts, yeah. yeah. I wish they were actually in the Devo suits. I would have really liked that. All they needed was the red planters on their head. Yes. <laughs> 
I got to say, though, there was a moment, I think it was a scene explicitly for this extended cut, where Ben's playing old footage of his wife and a birthday party and all of this, and he's staring at it. Is it supposed to be a genuine dramatic moment, Arnie, or was it a joke when he says, man, I was good looking? Because I honestly I didn't know. I think it's supposed to be genuinely <laughs> dramatic. Because <laughs> I'm not trying to Michael Chiklis. I mean, you're doing what you can for the bald man and whatever. I'm, uh, but seriously, like, I don't know that Michael Chiklis is that much better looking than Orange Hall. <laughs> The grass is always greener on the other side of the rocky. Perhaps. With that thing reveal, I loved it in the 80s when I'd see something like E.T. And in the ads, they wouldn't show us E.T. They just show shadows and shuffling. And you have to go see the movie to see E.T. And there were a number of films like that. Howard the Duck didn't show the duck in the ads. You just saw parts of the duck. You have to go pay your money to see the duck. The thing was all over the ads, and yet he was on the poster. And in this film, when he transforms, they, like, play coy. We're going to show you his feet. Now we're going to show you his back. And here's the thing reveal. It's like, that only works if the marketing agrees to it. They did that with the Godzilla remake in the 90s, but it didn't work here. Well, what I liked is your first expectation is you see Ben, he's in the bed, you're getting his point of view. Johnny's like, oh my gosh, all our plastic surgeons try to do whatever we could. We couldn't help you. And for me, again, this is the first time I've seen this. I know Ben Grimm becomes the thing. So I'm expecting, okay, they're just going to set up. He's going to look in the mirror and be the stone guy. I like that they played that moment knowingly, like they played with your expectations if he knew he's going to become the thing. I agree. I don't know why they held off later on and tried to do the slow reveal like they did with Ang Lee's Hulk. Because, yeah, they did promote it so much, but maybe that was a decision. Promotions is a separate thing than when they're putting the film together, so who knows? I I can't hold the film at blame for that. I can promise you Tim's story had no input on how Fox was going to market this movie. So he made the movie the best it can, and as a narrative, it is fun. They do tease it out. What is he going to look like? But you're right. If you had cared to know, it's all over the internet. It's on the poster. It's on the DVD box. There's no secret to be had when he comes. And it's not like when they actually see him moving around and doing it, they totally sell you on its life and believability anyway. I mean, it still looks like a guy in a suit. And Jacob, I'm just the opposite of you. I hated the whole, oh, we tried the best the plastic surgeons can do, and it turns out, oh, ha ha, Johnny's just making fun of him. That's too much. That was one joke, one Johnny joke that didn't play for me. The shaving cream joke, cool. The one that actually is building character at the beginning, not cool for you. Okay. But it's not building any character. It's it's building that continuation where they're playing off each other. They don't get along. I mean, it worked for me because it subverted my expectation. I thought that's when we were going to get the reveal of the thing, and we did it. It was that wink and that nod to the audience, the knowing audience, the comic book fans. I like that. I no, like not that. even the comic book fans. I knew it was coming, and I like the joke, too. I agree. It is a good little tease. It's operating at the sophistication level that the movie should be operating on. It's a really smart 13-year-old boy movie, and that's a good 13-year-old boy joke. <laughs> I'm trying to not take that personally, but okay. <laughs> No, I said I liked it, and I feel like this movie is inarguably made for a less sophisticated audience than X-Men was. You got it, man. Yeah. I mean, this is not X-Men. I mean, they're not dealing with weighty social issues. There's no real stakes here. This is about four people that, you know, turn all goofy because of cosmic rays and now are bickering. But, Stuart, didn't you see the early scene in the extended edition where Ben Grimm is in the Holocaust camp? (laughs) 
<laughs> he is Jewish. <laughs> I missed it. Where is this hospital that they're in? Because Johnny Storm goes out skiing with a nurse. Arnie, are you going to do this the whole movie? Do you not get it? It's a plot of convenience. <laughs> Every time we need something to happen, it is within our reach. Bing! <laughs> suddenly we are there. Yes, that's the way it works. I mean, that's how this movie is going to exist. Tim's story is riffing. He is not telling a story. He doesn't know much about story, I would even dare say. <laughs> he is here to make these guys funny and beloved the same way that his Chicago barbershop Southside crew was. That's what he's doing here. That's why he got the job. And it becomes really problematic in the middle of the movie where I feel like nothing is really happening. It's just gag after gag after gag. It feels very sitcom. It feels like a TV show. It feels like there isn't a storyline that is driving what we're watching. It feels like we're waiting for them to do all of their bits and eventually Doom is going to be the bad guy they fight in the last quarter of the movie i can't disagree with you there and already it did bug me too because at one moment you know you see ben Grimm run out and there's no snow anywhere then they're in a helicopter in the swiss alps i guess we just have to stretch our imagination as reed richards would stretch his arm every time i see johnny i feel like i'm watching an ad for an axe body wash <laughs> you know it's like that, it's, it's the same joke every time it's i'm going to do whatever it takes to get in this girl's pants and the problem is not that it isn't a good joke it's that it's the only joke joke and that they play it again and again and again to diminishing returns now i can say they played it a lot more in that extended cut a lot more than they did in the theatrical cut okay so a lot of this johnny jokes wasn't necessarily in the shorter version all the stuff in the bar where there's a scene where he sets a drink on fire and like a bunch of girls are like if i had superpowers i'd do something good with them oh that's the redemption moment yeah all of a sudden after most of the movie in which he's gotten all the fame and celebrity off of being able to fly and be on fire some girl in a bar is turned off by his tricks and tells him that he should be doing something more with his life. And I think that would work if this was a Human Torch film. It's an ensemble film, so I think it's alright to have the guy that's cocky the whole time. It doesn't bug me that he doesn't have much of a character arc, because there are so many other characters. I just kind of went with that fact that this film isn't really all that deep, and so we're supposed to say they all have a good heart deep down, even if Johnny chooses to bury it behind a whole bunch of supermodel boobs. Yeah, I, but it came out, and it should have because the moment isn't convincing. We don't believe that it would happen that way. If he was to learn that lesson, it needed to be told better. It needed to be better integrated into a screenplay. I completely agree. The other scene is like when he's quarantined and he's just making out with random girls in an elevator. That was also excised. Oh, that was awful. Yeah, he turns up the heat in the elevator because every person that gets in the elevator is a hot chick wearing a jacket and they'll have to take it off. What would have been funny, the punchline of that is that he ends up making out with them. The punchline should have been that like some big, you know, thing looking dude gets in and <laughs> starts taking off his jacket. Like I said, there's only one joke here. They're really not great comedians. For all of, you know, Tim Story's being hired to keep the funny, I would say that he has one idea for each of them. It's like watching Saturday Night Live. Like, we're now, like, an hour into the show, and, man, can we go to bed now? The only chick that Johnny hooks up with in the theatrical cut is the nurse at the beginning. And after that, he every so often has one on 
on his arm like at the motocross thing, but that is the only girl he really hooks up with the whole movie in the theatrical cut. So I can't say it's too much. I like Johnny's transformation scenes there. I actually like the jokes. Man, you're hot. Those jokes worked for me. And the, you're on fire. And there's one line from this movie I use whenever it's appropriate. Picture that. But everywhere. I think his best moment is when he's got a really good reaction shot looking at Thing and going, where are your ears? (laughs) He stole that one for me. I really like that bit. Arnie, I agree with you. I like some of his one-liners, especially towards the beginning and during that skiing scene and that. And when he first figures out he has the powers, he's walking around in the little towel and that. I didn't see the extended cut, so none of this seemed to really wear thin on me, his womanizing. I thought there was enough of it there to get the point. They didn't overplay it. Yeah, in the extended cut, there's a lot more, like, around the time he's putting whipped cream on Thing's face. It does wear a bit thin. Those are the two characters, Stuart, who you liked best. They're the ones who have the most cut from the actual theme theatrical cut the extended cut by the way isn't even available on blu-ray i had to get a dvd that's out of print well they were right to cut it it was too long but they have interesting conflicts one that's underutilized but one is that johnny's learning to fly he hasn't mastered his powers yet and so we're waiting for him to finally have the moment where he's going to be able to do more than what he can boast you know he goes skiing and he kind of flies and he later goes to the x games and is doing some motocross thing and he kind of flies the whole movie is built Building up to him finally fully becoming the Human Torch. We talked about Ben Grimm's suit. What did you think of the Human Torch CGI? I liked it. I thought it was fine. It was convincing enough for me. I mean, I don't know what a guy would look like that was really on fire all the time. So what they had, they really took some nods from the comic and it worked. It, much better than the CGI from the Corman film. <laughs> the unrendered effect. It no longer looks like I'm on the grid, but... <laughs> Can I respectfully challenge that and say it's not that much better? (laughs) It's neither photorealistic nor aesthetically pleasing. It is serviceable. That's kind of my feeling about all the CGI in this film. Both him and Reed, neither one looks real to me. The Reed stuff is much worse than the Human Torch, I think. The Reed stuff was cringeworthy when he turns into a little wheel and stretching his arms. I I didn't think it was much better than the Corman practical effects. (laughs) It was better than that, but it wasn't any more realistic than that. You know, (laughs) it all just looked so much like CGI that at times I felt like they didn't even care about realism. I know they blew a lot of money on this, but I don't know if like all the good CGI houses were taken or they just had to go to the most expensive, but not the best but I just kind of felt like the effects on this just they didn't live up to any kind of photorealism they were worse to me than the thing outfit it just looked like CGI cartoon Jar Jar was better excuse me And then they have their first big battle on the bridge. This is when I knew they were making a movie for children. They have a reaction shot cut to the Dalmatian in the fire truck (laughs) as it totters over the edge and it puts its paw over its eyes. I'm like, ah, I get it. This is such a kid's movie. And it's kind of when I checked out of the movie, frankly, is at this moment. It was like, ah, they're not even trying to make something I would like. I don't know. I thought it was a fine you know, rescue scene. It reminded me a lot of Christopher Reeve saving the school bus and Superman one. Maybe that's why I enjoyed it. Cause it was pretty much taken straight from that. But I thought it was kind of weird that everyone was cheering that they saved the day when the thing actually caused all these accidents, which again, I thought was a nice nod to fantastic four. Number one, where you first see them using their powers and they're just destroying stuff. Like they have no handle on anything. And the thing is like smashing cars, even though he doesn't mean to. So I, maybe I liked it one because it was a nod to Superman, the movie and, And it was a nice reference point for the original Fantastic Four comic. See, 
I thought of it kind of like the reason they were being cheered. We're in a post 9-11 world when this comes out. I'm thinking back to how, like, in the original Spider-Man, Spider-Man saves a police officer and, like, all the fire department and everything. He saved firemen. And, you know, who's more heroic post 9-11 than firemen? He saves firemen's lives. So, of course, he's heroic. Yeah, no, I was definitely thinking about that at this time. We definitely were still grappling with 9-11. And even though they're trying to be light and funny here, I think that that is their go-to reference here for, you're right, for a real working class hero. Yeah, and not just any fireman. New York firemen. Mm-hmm. They were originally from New York. I mean, I, it's not like they were pandering because they were in New York. I mean, that's where the Fantastic Four live. No, they were pandering because of the screenwriting. <laughs> <laughs> so, after they rescue the firemen, rah-rah, post-9-11 world, they go to the Baxter building, and this is where we get our Stan Lee cameo, and he's just too talky here. Like, I'm fine when Stan Lee's, like, watering the lawn, when his role is to be the postman and go, Mr. Richards, here's your bills. Like, I don't want that from Stan Lee. I want him to be a background character. Did you listen to the commentary? No, I didn't. Because it's actually funny. On all the bonus features, they keep talking about how Stan Lee was just given one line that says... Good day, Mr. Richards. And when Stanley got to the set, he took Yoan aside and said, All right, I really want to beef up my part. So ad lib with me. We're going to go for five minutes. Ask me how my day was. And so all <laughs> of this that we see is just a glimpse into what Stanley and Yoan went into on their own. And I'm sure everybody's just standing around like it's supposed to be one line. <laughs> But who's going to tell Stan Lee no? Well, that sounds like a very Stan Lee thing to do. He loves the attention, but I got to say, he is no Cedric the Entertainer here. (laughs) (laughs) But Stuart, you you said the moment you knew this was for kids because the dog was covering his eyes. You know, here's when I think we first really got Jessica Alba have to strip to sneak past the cops to get to the thing, even though Johnny and Richards were able to just walk by and somehow get to him. I don't understand like, that. I'm like, okay, they're just going to use Jessica Alba as an excuse to almost get her naked. Like, I had that moment where I'm like, okay, this is for 16-year-old boys. Yeah. Yeah, because they're like, we can't get through. Why can't they get through? There was no police barricade, so I figured it was because of the crowds. But if Invisible Girl turns invisible, then she can elbow her way through? I don't understand <laughs> that. Yeah, she can't walk through walls or cars. It's not like her invisibility makes her porous. I mean, she's limited by the objects around her as much as anyone. But after she, naked, brushes up against all these strangers in New York, then she gets to the other side, and there's Johnny and Reed standing right there. It's like, what did her being there help with them? And what I love even more is that she turns invisible in front of everyone. Really, that's your sneak attack, is that you go invisible in front of everyone. Everyone watches you take your clothes off, and then you just walk by. It's like, they know you're invisible. They're going to be looking for something. Would it have been less conspicuous if she stripped then changed? (laughs) Or if she would have found a phone booth to go in, away from everyone, and then come out and snuck by them. The invisible girl is a lame hero, period. No matter how you slice it. It's just not a good power. No, which is why they added the ability to project force fields. Now, Jacob. No, they didn't add that. They did in the comic. And I was going to ask you if you've read the issue where they give her her power. Because I have not. But what I've been told is it just starts off with Reed going, I've been studying your power. And I think you can project force fields. Why don't you try? And immediately she does. And it was that terrible 60s comic book excuse. I thought you were saying they just added it for this film. No, I mean. 
mean, you realize that she has the ability to play with light and bend it and move it around and form these force shields with light and air. Yes, it is poorly explained in the comic. It's just like, we need a new power for her. So yes, but it wasn't added just for the movie. Well, thank God they gave her something else because truly I cringe thinking how often they would have to write themselves into a situation where invisibility was going to get them out of it. She got the shaft in the power department. She really did. But again, going back to the 60s, it made a lot of sense. But I think even they realized writing the comics, there's only so much stealth is useful for. It's a very defensive, sneaky power. It's not very good in a fight. Well, Arnie... You've played Dungeons and Dragons before, haven't you? I know you've done some kind of role-playing stuff. With stewards in the playground. <laughs> yeah, come on, you guys. When you're building a team, you have to have, like, your magic caster and your defensive character and your offensive I mean, come on. That's a staple in any kind of team. You always have your just defensive characters there. But that doesn't make them fun in a fight. <laughs> I agree. Who would you rather have on your back? That's all I'm saying. I'd rather have the torch who can fly and set people on fire. Thing and Torch are the best, and, well, maybe Reed can grab something out of Reach. <laughs> That's pretty much how it ranks. I want Reed to help me change my light bulbs. <laughs> That's about it. Yeah. I'm a short man. Every so often, I wish for Reed's power so I can see over people in movie theaters. But, of course, they have to team up and use their powers. Johnny, in addition to lighting himself on fire, can apparently create shields away from fire for little children. And Thing saves the firemen, and now they're heroes and celebrities, and they start to make some money off this, right? Johnny's getting endorsements and things. And again, this is what the concept was for the movie back in the early 2000s. This is what the original Mark Frost draft was trying to get at. The story, the plot, would all be about how these characters are dealing with fame and their superheroes. You know, here's the interesting thing. Yeah, Johnny, he's got the action figures. I'm wondering if Frost either lifted this or, or if this was influenced at all by a DC character named Booster Gold, who was like from the future. And he was like this jock who got injured, never became the pro future football player, ends up working as a janitor in a superhero museum. And he like ends up stealing like a flight ring and a power suit and a time machine and comes back to our days. And because he knows the future, he knows like when the bad guys are going to show up and fight him. And he actually does go after all these sponsors. He's seen as this movie star and he's got this little robot that flies around with him to film him so he could always be on the news and he has the endorsement deal you know much like a nascar suit with all the different endorsement deals again is an interesting aspect of the superhero i like those kind of explorations where if you had all these powers and you're going to be on the news all the time hey maybe you want to capitalize on that maybe you go after those product placements of course that doesn't go anywhere in this film they kind of make a joke about an action figure and then drop it wasn't doom supposed to get 75 percent of all discoveries wouldn't doom be getting 75 percent of johnny's merchandising money wouldn't doom be doing something in this movie <laughs> uh, now you're really getting to it you're really getting to the real problem with this movie is that we've been focusing on the four and they're dealing with their powers maybe some of the comedy's not working but i understand it. We've got to do the origin. Meanwhile, the guy that protected himself behind the shields also still got zapped somehow in some way and is transforming. He's on the hook for his company to turn it around in a week because, you know, it obviously made bad press that their space station blew up. <laughs> And what is his plan? What is he doing? I can tell you in an earlier draft 
of the script that I read, he was actually the one trying to heal the four because he thought the only way to turn around the stocks would be if he could take credit for healing the people that he were injured at a space station. I will say that I like the fact that the superhero movie focuses on the superheroes. Sometimes I think the actual hero gets shortchanged in the films. Sure, that's a good point. But you need a good villain, too. And Doom, he was behind the shields. I kind of took it as... and. The reason for his power is because he was behind the shields, right? He was behind shields and his body becomes shields, right? He becomes all metal. Right, yeah. And a panel blows up in front of him shooting sparks and now he can shoot electricity and generate it. So I kind of took it as that's why he got the powers he got was because he was behind the shields. I don't know why any of the others got the power they got. Maybe the thing became ugly because he was the most exposed because he was outside the station for a bit. As for why Reed can stretch and Johnny can flame on, that I don't know that. Because Johnny's a hothead, and they made a comment about Richards being stretched at the beginning. That was the last movie, <laughs> but they do have it in... No, they, they, they throw it a line at the beginning of this one, too. You're no. stretching yourself too thin or something like that. Always stretching for the stars or something. Yes, yeah. They do elaborate a little bit more in the draft that, like, Johnny, there was space debris and rocks around where Ben was and that Johnny was by something that exploded. Sue was by some hot steam vapor that was shooting out and that Richards was reaching out to grab Ben and they tried. But you can't explain why Cosmic Rays would give this kind of variance to powers. It's dumb. <laughs> it can only work in a comic book and not a very sophisticated comic book at that. And that's my point. The whole time you've been arguing, I don't care about this because it's a comic. I don't care that there's hills right outside their hospital with snow that they could do extreme skiing. Like, at the beginning, they say, oh, this is the stuff that caused evolution. It messes with DNA. For me, that was explanation enough. That, okay, this is going to mess with your DNA if you come in contact with it. Do we really want something about Colossus that comes to Earth every 10 years and it makes you God or some googly gook where, you know, we have Commander Lassard explaining the speed of light? No, it messes with your DNA. For me, it's fine. It's to the point. It works. Here's the thing. You either have to give the film a premise or not. And when you're going to have four superpowered beings with four different powers... We don't want four origin stories. I mean, I guess that's what they're doing with the Avengers, where each hero gets their own origin story before they come together. Here, I'm going to give the film its premise as to this wave hits and it gives all five powers. I mean, Stuart, did it bug you in X-Men that because they have a mutated gene, one is psychic and one is an animal and one is uh, can change her presence? And I mean, one has claws coming out of his hand. I mean, because of a mutated gene? I mean, it's the same premise here. I believe I said it did start bugging me in X3 the more I saw the mutants. So the answer is it's all about how it's delivered. And I do feel like if we had had a better introduction to their powers, if that space station scene had been just slightly more credible? I don't know what the word is, but I don't expect it to be realistic or actiony or dark or anything, but I have to buy into it. And you're saying that you just buy into it wholly because that's what you got to do. And I understand that, but there's no flooring to this movie. It just does whatever it needs to at any given moment to make the gag and not to tell the story. The first 15 minutes of a movie, that's there to set up the rules. If the rule is there's a cloud that affects evolution, then fine, whatever. That's your rule. As long as you stick to that rule, I'm willing to go with it. That's how I am when I go into a movie. As long as you explain what the rules are and stick to them, they might be stupid rules. And if they're really, really stupid rules, then yes, it will bug me. But these, they were sufficient. They weren't amazing and it drew me into the movie. They were sufficient. Right. I'll tell you what I went with and I'll tell you what I didn't. I went with Cosmic Rays gave them powers. 
I mean, radioactive spider any more credible than that? Not really. So cosmic rays give them powers and they're different powers. That I'll go with. In the extended cut, the cosmic rays also gave four flowers the exact same four powers. Wait. Because I got questions about flowers, because I didn't see this extended cut. You get this scene with Sue in the hospital, and Reed walks in with an orchid, and then they're placing orchids next to her, and he's like, she's allergic to those. Give her the sunflowers. And I thought, okay, is there... Are they going to go to a flashback where on their first date he gave her sunflowers? It seemed weird that they drew all this attention to the flowers and never went anywhere with it. So you're telling me there's more flower stories. That actually was different. That was just shorthand for Reed is sweet because he's a guy who pays attention to what kind of flowers a girl likes. The sunflowers never come back into it. It's at the very beginning when Ben's out on a spacewalk and says he's planting Reed's flowers. Those flowers were what were supposed to be exposed to the cosmic rays. And one of them turns like clear and one of them starts to stretch and one of them gets rocky. And okay, that is stupid. I'm glad they cut that. <laughs> uh, really? Because I kind of go with that a little bit more, at least because as it's written in the screenplay, and I don't think it really comes out in even the extended cut, but Reed is limited by the four flowers. He can only use those to activate his machine to heal them. And once that's used up, there is so no healing them. So is that where he gets the abilities to make his own cosmic ray storm later on in the film? Yes, from the actually. Because that was one of my questions. Because if he could replicate the cosmic storm, why did why they have to go, go to space? space? Yes. Yeah, so, okay, that makes sense now. They do not put that in the extended cut. In the extended no. cut, what I saw was the flowers are there for him to test his reverser machine on. And this is the second part that I don't go with. That Reed can then suddenly capture this lightning in a bottle and have a machine that will both reverse and then regrant the powers. Yeah, and uh, let me be clear. I got what I was talking about from that draft of the screenplay that I read, but it's not in the extended cut. You're right. They have more of the flowers in there, but they do not explicitly state that the flowers are what gives Reed a limited access to healing them. And it explains why he's not still trying to heal them at the end of the movie. It's just a drop storyline of, hey, we need to get rid of our powers. And then by the end of it, they decide, nah. Well, the only one who really wanted to get rid of his powers the whole time was Ben, right? Because he's ugly and he lost his girl. Reed and Sue, it's somewhat stated that they're a little worried about what the long-term effects will be, but they don't really need to get rid of their powers. And Johnny, certainly, you'd have to throw him kicking and screaming to lose his powers. It was really for Ben, and at the end, Ben decides that the benefits of being the thing outweigh the cost, so that's why he voluntarily gets them back. That said, there's a machine that can take his powers away and give them back. Jacob, you mentioned the thing ring earlier. Isn't this pretty much the same thing? It's the crystal chamber from Superman 2. Like, <laughs> I didn't get that. Yeah, there's a point in this film where I'm into it, and then there's a point where it loses it. By this point, no, I'm not there. Even further, you know, you talked about how some of the team, they're okay with their powers. Some want to change them. You know, Johnny's really into him. What about Doom? I'm trying to understand his motivation in this film. You know, we talked about the Corman one. It's just he's the evil guy. He blames Richards for whatever reason for the accident. Like in this film, I really kind of think it is Mr. Fantastic Reed Richards' fault for this accident in space. Like he's warned by Sue when they're in the elevator before they go into space that, hey, you might have your calculations wrong for this storm and it might actually be gaining speed. He's like, no, nah, no, nah, I'm too smart. I got this. 
it is Richards who kind of screws up this beginning experiment that affects them all. Doom, I'm wondering if his whole thing is revenge on Richards. I kind of agree with him. It was kind of Richards' fault. <laughs> no, because when you really think about it, when you realize that the shields did go on and they just didn't protect Victor... That really, he's the one to blame. He said, yeah, I got the technology that will protect us as we conduct these experiments, and it actually doesn't work. It had nothing to do with Reed's calculation. It had to do with Victor bragging about having technology he obviously didn't have. So it is his fault. So then what is his point for revenge? He's pissed off that because of Richards, he agreed to this experiment, and it cost him his company. They they don't flesh him out here. I didn't get him in the last movie. I don't get him in this movie. I don't think he's a good villain at all. I know that, you know, it's cool and Darth Vader-y that he has the hood and the metal face, but it's completely unsatisfying. Actually, according to a Star Wars book I picked up, Darth Vader ripped off Doctor Doom. No, I can believe that. Doom was before Vader, so... By saying he's cool and Darth Vader-y, I'm only implying that it's going to the same pool. You're going to the same idea that, you know, it's a big, scary, masked dude who his performance is all in his body language. Which he doesn't have a lot of in this. No. Like, his performance bothered me. Like, Vader, I thought, you know, the body language is really good at times, but they also have James Earl Jones doing the voice. Here, it's a guy in a mask with the same voice, maybe with a little reverb turned up. I felt like I was watching a foreign movie with English dubs <laughs> whenever he was on the screen. It just didn't seem natural. Yeah, I thought that in the last movie, Doom went too far with his hand gestures. <laughs> and in this one, not far enough. But I don't get his plan. If his plan is revenge on Reed, I don't quite get it. I don't see what the point is. I don't think they ever said that. I never got that impression, actually. My impression is that... He had his power taken away from him by being demoted from his company. And the rest of the movie is, how can I get more power? And it becomes a literal, how do I amass power? Well, I'm magnetic. I'm made of metal. So I'm going to stick with this. And I'm going to suck up all the power in the world, or I'll get rid of anybody that can stop me. It's kind of half-assed, frankly. Well, yeah, I mean, I just don't understand the plan. I don't get killing his doctor. Because that's how you know he's evil. Yeah. I don't get if the transformation is making him evil, or if he was always evil, and this transformation just gave him the power to execute it. Well, here's the interesting thing. In the comic, they've never revealed Doom's face. It's always been a mask on him. They Sideshow did come out with a bust of Doom without his mask, and I'm serious. You could take the nose off and have a noseless mummy-looking Doom, or put the nose on him and have a mummy-looking Doom with a nose. But Jack Kirby, who was the artist and did all the co-writing with Stan Lee on the original Fantastic Four, his original idea was that if he ever took the mask off, Doom would only have a tiny little single scar on his face. But for him, he was so vain and so narcissistic. He believed that made him the ugliest person in the world and wanted to cover it up and take over the world because he blamed the world for making him this ugly person when it was a nice character development thing here though like you said arnie i don't know if he's turning evil or you know we know he's a megalomaniac because they opened the movie with a 30-foot statue of him like i don't know what's really going on with this character they don't develop him at all i think that julian mcmahon would make sense if you were playing him as vain because you know he's on this show about plastic surgery and he's just kind of a metrosexual pretty boy <laughs> kind of guy i get that but i don't feel like the character is really written that way i mean 
And I don't feel like his vanity is what's driving his thirst for power. It's not clear. And because the guy ultimately is supposed to be some badass, that's why I feel like Julian McMahon is all wrong for this. He has no scary presence. Just to look at him, you're not fearful. He's not intimidated. The other thing is, he is very vain. He's like, get me on Larry King, but make sure they only shoot me from my left side so they don't show the scar. Has he ever seen Larry King? The guests are always left side shot. <laughs> but also, he gets the machine that can turn Grimm back to normal, and he does. Well, if he's so vain and his hair is falling out and his skin's falling off, why doesn't he cure himself? He says he actually used the machine to make him himself more powerful so he increased his mutation thus accelerating loss of hair and skin thus going against the very but yet he's also so vain that this mask he just so happens to have sitting around his office just you know it wasn't a, an award for his humanitarian yes. works which haha ha, he's the evil guy with the humanitarian award and the humanitarians give you this crazy iron mask <laughs> yes what it's latvia I, I don't know what their customs are there He's turning into metal, but yet he has to wear a metal mask to hide his... I'm very confused by all of this. Did I mention that Tim Story said that he was going to cherry pick the best ideas from the 15 years of drafts that have been crafted for this movie? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's not a consistent doom. We have uh, all different conceptions, and Julian McMahon might have worked if you're right. His whole drive was to get his face back. But you're right. He has that opportunity, and instead, he takes the other path, and that's just not a believable moment. At that point, we don't understand what he's about. We only know that the four must team up and stop him. It really becomes a very reductive, dumb, four against one battle. Yeah, I've seen cartoons for the Fantastic Four that had more depth than this ending. I mean, he was evil for evil's sake. He was just there for someone for them to fight, but I never got what his grand plan was. Was it world domination? Was it just restoring his business, making his business better? Not only is it not made clear, it's never even said at all. It's all of the above and none of them at the same time. The movie hates me for asking the question. <laughs> yes. Yep, that's precisely correct. Somewhere Tim's story is like, dude, it's a joke. Laugh. Yeah, I think you're right. That's not why you hire Tim's story. You know, he is here to just make it fun and to riff and the plot be damned. Now, do you feel they got the line in here? You know, Dr. Doom tries to freeze Reed for some reason. He steals a whole arsenal. He's got rocket launchers yes. now and guns and whatever. In the extended cut, there's a CGI added scene. I don't even think this was even filmed. It was CGI'd in that centers on a hologram of Doom after like Reed and Ben have gone up to see him that talks about all his defense contract work and that he works for the US government. So he makes all this stuff for the government. He's a warmonger. I don't remember even seeing that, and I did see that cut. It just glazed right over me. I only noticed it because it was like 10 seconds of just still hologram that I knew wasn't there before. So if he had access to this, why did he have to kill a bunch of people to go get it? I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> okay. Let's just get to the end. Because he's evil. Did he even kill a bunch of people? He killed the banker who took away his money and a doctor who said you're ugly. Some of the guards so he could steal a bazooka. Yeah. There were some corpses there. Oh, that's right. He just, yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. But at one point when he's freezing Reed, he says, do you know what happens when you freeze rubber or something like the that? The same thing that happens to everything else. 
<laughs> yes, was that an homage to the X-Men line? Because they say it a few times. They say it in reference to Reed, and they, they use it a couple of times in this film. I just had to wonder if that was in reference to the X-Men line. I was so confused. If you steal Deep Freeze something or rather, how could they not apply that to Johnny? Like, I was like, oh, this is obviously <laughs> I, the fight I'm with you. Short. And like, no, it's like, what happens when plastic freezes? I don't know, probably nothing. <laughs> it becomes really hard. <laughs> yeah, it'll warm up. I mean, that's not the way to go. <laughs> I think the whole point is it becomes brittle and it's the way to break him. You can't break him any other way. I mean, we've already seen his elasticity can make him beat the thing in a fight because the thing punches him and he just bounces. So you have to make him brittle so that you can break him. No, you don't. You have to put him in the pod and zap him like you did with Thing and turn him back into a mortal human. But maybe the flower power had run out by then. Uh, but that wasn't in the <laughs> film they made. I have such oh. a migraine. All right. So then he fires a missile at the Baxter building. Real confusion here. So Johnny turns onto the human torch and flies away to seeking it. It was a heat-seeking missile. Why would you do that? It wouldn't even get to the building. There would be so many other sources of heat in New York City, Manhattan. Because his <laughs> internal temperature is like 300 degrees. They show that at the beginning when they're in the hospital. Like, he's always hot. Oh, so he was trying to assassinate Johnny. Specifically. Yeah, he drops a line about how Johnny says something like, that's coming for me. Yeah. Oh, okay. I thought he was trying to blow up Reed's lab. No, because he's going to take him out one at a time. So he turns the thing back into Ben Grimm. He freezes Mr. Fantastic. And this is how he was going to take out the human torch. He was fighting fire with fire, literally, <laughs> which doesn't work. I'll confess I wasn't giving this my full attention at this point. I'll sadly say it was my third time watching the movie that I caught that it was a heat-seeking missile that was going specifically for Johnny. No, it was very confusing to me because I thought it was just a rocket. But yeah, so then we have the exciting moment where he learns to fly and, you know, it's all right, I guess. I enjoyed it. As far as a superhero movie goes, I thought it worked. Heat-seeking missile after the fire guy and... He's setting things on fire or turning off his powers to get away from it. I liked it. In addition, it's finally him coming into heroics, right? He's always been the one embracing the fame and the fortune and the glory, but never actually was shown to be willing to sacrifice anything. Sure, he tried to help real Ben in in the beginning, but you never see him do anything worth a damn except shield no, the kid. The child well, on yeah, the he shield the kid. The, the child in the bridge. And more to the point, was he ever given an opportunity before? It's not like he walked away from being a humanitarian the script didn't ever present that as an obstacle for him to overcome so ben becomes the thing again because he can just flip that switch and make that happen and uh, whatever <laughs> the movie doesn't care so why should i <laughs> i don't i don't care i've made up my mind and then we get the fight and yeah it's if doom was a better villain i would understand this more but i just don't get it i don't care i just want the fight to be over it's not exciting to me and again that rubber cgi is not working for me what bugs me the most you know it's not the maybe lackluster action or anything what bugs me the most is you get this scene and ben drops a funny line he's like can i borrow your car and they're like the transmission sticks that's not going to be a problem i chuckled but he takes this car and throws it at doom which knocks doom into a bus which just happened to be empty. <laughs> There's no one in this, but like for me, that that's like a big deal with superheroes is that, you know, it's Superman too with General Zod and the other villains. They realize Superman's weak point is the civilian. So that's who they attack that he cares for these people. And so by attacking them, that's how they're going to defeat him. It really bugs me when you're supposed to be the superhero. And maybe it's because I've read all this stuff in the comics, but when you just ignore the civilian aspect, 
that bugs me. And so the fact that it just happened to be an empty bus, like that's what bugged me the most at this point. You make an excellent point because you're right. At no point other than the bridge scene, do I ever see them doing anything that isn't self-motivated? I don't know why people love them because truly they're not doing anything for people. No, they're destroying a lot of property. Yeah. And of course, the only way that they can defeat Doom is if they all come together and somehow figure out how a flaming, invisible rock that stretches is going to do the trick. I don't envy the screenwriter that has to figure out how this combo of magic four different powers is going to sync up to do that against an enemy that I still don't understand even what they do. Again, I don't mind it. That's what I liked about certain parts of the X-Men films when they used their different powers and combined them. What would have been neat if they would have done something innovative like the plastic man actually has to do something stealthy and the fire guy actually has to do something you know i don't know strong if they would have somehow had to use their roles in place of the other person's role that would have been smart writing here again it's what's expected like if they didn't do this i would have been more (laughs) upset than seeing reed richards turn into a water slide to direct water that's the best use of his power is to be a hose Talk me through this. Sue is creating force fields that make Johnny's fire swirl around Doom, right? No, Johnny is swirling around Doom going supernova because apparently the metal inside of Doom is so strong that Johnny has to be at the heat or near the heat of the sun. And Sue is using her powers to contain that heat so it doesn't melt everything else. Ah, okay. Because they dropped the line that it could set the Earth's atmosphere on fire. And here's my thing with Sue. Like, we see her earlier use a force field against Doom's electricity powers and she's like, I can barely contain his electricity with my shields. But yet she's containing the power of the sun. (laughs) I I just want to know why she looks constipated while she's doing it. Her pose that she has to strike to create these force fields is embarrassing for her. I feel bad for Jessica Alba to have to stand there (laughs) and look like she's clenching. All right. So while that's going on, then the thing, the super strong guy, he can break into a fire hydrant. And Reed can turn into a water water slide (laughs) and spray it on the hot metal, which makes it rust. So what's the science behind this? They throw out the line. Do you know what happens when you cool super hot metal really fast? Like, again, they bring up that line. They always twist and put a different ending on there. But yeah, he's super hot and melty. And then they didn't you see Terminator 2? I I thought that's what it was out of. (laughs) Again, I don't know how he's so strong that he could stand up to the heat of the sun, but he'd just be gun to melt. Yeah, he stands up to the heat of the sun, but he's movable metal. It's not like he was warm to begin with, and that's why he was able to move, and then he was cooled like an iron in the fire. It doesn't make any sense. Again, the movie doesn't care. Why should I? No, I don't. It's over. They've all come together. Yay. My children love it. (laughs) The ones that are still zygotes because they're not born. And I guess I know I've beaten logic to the ground, or this movie has beaten logic to the ground, and yet I'm still trying to give it CPR. But the last scene of the movie, they're shipping Doom away. And they're like, how long will it take him to get to Latvia? It'll take three weeks. And they're putting him in cargo. And then they zoom out and you see the ship's already sailed. (laughs) They're talking about how long is it going to take? He's already on the boat. The guy shipping him is on the boat, right? Yes. My question is, because this is like his secretary from his company. Did they steal the body? Like, I thought they kidnapped him. Because wouldn't you 
like lock that up in some Area 51 warehouse with the Ark of the Covenant from Indiana Jones? That's exactly what I thought they were doing, because when they zoom out and you see the cargo ship, he's in one cargo crate of a million cargo crates, just like the Ark. It's like, are they trying to bury him? And if so, why? His assistant's obviously not getting paid anymore. What's his motivation? I want to talk about an underdeveloped character. I don't know if they kidnapped the body. Why isn't he in some kind of cell? Did they kidnap the body, or was the plan to ship him to Latveria and put him in storage in his castle? Like, I don't know. I just assumed they were getting rid of him. But why wouldn't you put him under some military lock and key? Why wouldn't Reed study him? Why would you ship him to a foreign nation? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I don't understand why they're shipping him back home or any of this. The whole scene just, all it did was be like, doom still around well no duh i mean we didn't think he was decimated we saw him standing he didn't melt into a little puddle yelling what a world what a world during their fight at the end it's one step worse than noticing hey that glove's moving even though there's no hand in it but i guess that leaves jacob stewart do you recommend fantastic four jacob well you guys i might surprise you here we've been spewing a lot of hate about this movie i have a hard time actually hating it like when i go into a film I go in wanting to like it, like a film starts off as average for me. And then throughout the course of the film, that scale will move to a good film, bad film. This film, it's not X-Men, it's not The Dark Knight, but it's not also Man-Thing or (laughs) Howard the Duck. Like it for me, like I know we have to give a recommendation for me. I am totally on the fence here. I don't even have like two legs on one side. I'm totally straddling this fence here of recommend, not recommend. This is one I've been struggling with this way. We uh, give our final judgment. Now, you know, the pain Ebert suffers. Yes. (laughs) I want to give the thumb straight out, not up or down. (laughs) No, like I said, this is the first time I saw this film. I've never sat down and watched it. And the first, I don't know, half or whatever, I was kind of liking it. Up until they got to the Baxter building, I felt that's where it really went downhill, where we went into barbershop mode and we're doing the shaving cream and Reed Richards is stretching from one bathroom to the other to get the toilet paper. Like, that stuff turned me off. I was actually enjoying the first half of this film and we nitpick every film, even the good films we nitpick. So I I don't feel just because I've been nitpicking this that it means that I hated this film. I am completely neutral, and I'm not going to say it's a bad film. It's sufficient for a superhero film. No, it's not breaking any ground. It's not doing anything new. And maybe it's because I enjoy superhero comics that I wasn't outright offended by this film. There's enough hate on the internet, so I'm going to give it the weakest possible recommend because I am on the fence. I'm straddling that fence. There's nothing for me to outright hate this movie. Yes, there's bad storytelling, but every film has plot holes. The ones in this weren't any worse than other films that I have enjoyed. So I'm giving this the weakest, weakest possible recommend that there is in the now plain handbook. Okay, Stuart. I don't hate this film either, but I'm not on that fence. I don't recommend Fantastic Four, and a lot of what I suspected watching the last movie, the Corman movie, has come to fruition. For all the money and the time and the energy that they poured into this, they have not gotten a better movie out of it. It is pretty much as good as that cheapy thing. It's just only more splashy. So I guess I would say is if you like these characters and you want to see them more vividly realized than Corman's $2 million budget was able to do, maybe you could go with it. But I don't like these characters. For the most part, I don't think this is a whole lot of fun to watch. And I think when they aren't able to deliver a credible villain, the second half of the movie goes from being eh, where you're at, Jacob, to really not being recommendable. If you want a recommendation, like you said, let's go back to a really good Fantastic Four movie, The Incredibles. 
And as for me, I'm also like those two on the fence. I thought there was a lot of fun in this movie, mostly from Chris Evans. When he was on the screen, I was engaged in this film. And even though I thought Jessica Alba's performance was poor and I thought Yoan was miscast, I was enjoying some of their interplay and I was enjoying the thing. The fact is, I never, even on the extended cut, which is 20 more minutes of them bantering, never thought it grew tiresome. What? No, I didn't. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the interplay. Maybe it's because of having somewhat of a comic book history. I'm not much into Fantastic Four comics, but maybe it's because I was somewhat familiar with them. But I found myself enjoying the barbershoppy scenes of this. What I didn't find myself enjoying were the comic booky scenes of this. And so I was really on the fence and I came up with an analogy with this. This film reminds me of like when I was a bachelor and I'd want some dinner and I was not making much money. So I didn't have the money to order a pizza. So I'd go to my cupboard just to see what I could cook for myself. And I had no food. All I could find was like a can of cake frosting and a bag of marshmallows. (laughs) And so there's my dinner. (laughs) And I sit down and I eat the marshmallows and the cake frosting. And I'm thinking it's going down pretty easy. But by the time it's done, I'm feeling a little ill. It's not something I could recommend as a meal. And it certainly probably wasn't the most healthy of choices. (laughs) Hey, if you're looking for my recipe for a corn sandwich, uh, I I came about (laughs) it the same way. Can of corn, dump on bread, ketchup. It's a fantastic (laughs) foursome. So, in the end, I just have to give this a weak not recommend. There's some enjoyment here, and if you like the characters, you'll probably like the movie. But can I recommend you see it? I can't recommend you see it. If you're old Mother Hubbard and that's all that's in your cupboard, though, it's better than starvation. If you know who Mother Hubbard is, you might have a better chance of liking it, because it is made for kids, right? I don't necessarily see that. I see it as trying to be all ages and fun. I see it like Superman 79 trying for that. I don't know that it has succeeded. I didn't even notice the dog scene until you mentioned it. And I got to say, just from your description of the extended scenes, if I did see that extended cut, I'd probably fall onto the side of not recommend because it looks like it pushed the stuff that I didn't like just far enough to lean me that way. I'm recommending the weakest recommend possible for the theatrical cut. You know, when I saw this film, I had to say I didn't think they'd make another one. But surprisingly enough, two years later, they did with The Rise of the Silver Surfer, and we will be back next week to talk about it. Meanwhile, starting on Thursdays, Arnie, you and Jacob and Brock are going to try and cheat death, right? Cheat death and cheat the clock by finding more time to make more podcasts that we're giving to our listeners. As just as a special bonus series, we are doing the Final Destination series. And if you want more fantastic movie reviews, head to nowplayingpodcast.com and check out our archive section where you can find other comic book movie reviews like Scott Pilgrim vs. the World or more in our Marvel series, our entire X-Men film series. Green Lantern, and our Marvel Misfits series with Man-Thing, Howard the Duck, and Kick-Ass. All this and more at NowPlayingPodcast.com. And while you're at NowPlayingPodcast.com, there's a little button at the bottom that says Donate. And if you click that button, it really does help keep us on the air and keep us podcasting and keep us bringing extra bonus series like Final Destination to you. So if you appreciate the show... 
show your support by clicking donate. You can also come over and talk about these films in our forums. The links from nowplayingpodcast.com. Tell us what you thought of Fantastic Four. And next week, tell us what you thought of Captain America. We'll tell you next year when we get to what this Marvel series is really all building up to, the Avengers. So we'll be back next week with Rise of the Silver Surfer. And until then, flame on! It's not like you to run away from a challenge, Victor. Yes, you're right. Considering all that has happened here tonight, I'll take what I can get. I'm going to enjoy killing you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the now-playing Fantastic Four movie retrospective series. I will no longer serve. This is the end for us both. Come to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we review another fantastic installment of this film series. That's not funny. What am I supposed to do in the meantime? And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, you can hear our reviews of other Marvel Comics films, such as X-Men, Howard the Duck, Man-Thing, Kick-Ass, as well as reviews of non-comic-based film series like Terminator, Transformers, Star Trek, Predator, and individual movie reviews such as Avatar, Inception, The Human Centipede, and Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. This is by far the coolest thing you have ever done! Be sure to join our forums where you can share your opinions on these films with the hosts and other listeners. Damn, I've been waiting to do that. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are at nowplayingpodcast.com. Same old Reed, always stretching, reaching for the stars with the weight of the world on his back. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. So what do you guys think about trying to get an endorsement get us a private jet? You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Thank you. It's very generous of you. You could also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy Now Playing t-shirts, coffee mugs, mouse pads, and much more. The link to our Cafe Press store is available on our homepage. What do you have against capitalism? Now Playing's Fantastic Four retrospective series is edited by Carlos and Arnie. Hey, don't worry about it. I'm sure between the two of us, we'll get it all done. Now Playing's credit narrations by Brock. He does the talking. I do the welcome. Got it? Now Playing is not affiliated with Marvel Enterprises or 20th Century Fox. This isn't a negotiation, it's a notification. The Marvel characters and all that the Marvel Universe contains is the intellectual property and trademark of Marvel Publishing Incorporated, and no infringement is intended. We're dealing with something highly resourceful. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Enganza Media Incorporated. Don't even think about it! Never do. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2011, all rights reserved. It's time to end this. No, Vic. It's clobbering time. Christopher Columbus, not Christopher Columbus, Chris Columbus, um, <laughs> and Steven Spielberg. Christopher Columbus, well, you know. Sailed the ocean easy. blue, made Fantastic Four. 
Well, you know, it, it, it is fourteen ninety two productions that he does know the joke that people confuse him with the famous sailor. But uh, yes, somewhere Tim's story is like Tim's story. That's my cousin. Um, what's his name? The director. It is oh, Tim's story. story. Oh. I am the fan of that series. I have Rocky is of course. I thought the I was newbie. the newbie. Oh, I don't know. Rocky I've never seen it. No, there, there's two newbies. Oh, okay. let's face it. You couldn't get me on that. You'd ha- you could like there's no engineering that little Rube Goldberg to get me to be on that show. Enjoy <laughs> Tuesday. I'm I'm busy. I'm washing my hair. <laughs> Jacob, I think you're coming into this as the uh, as the pseudo expert in trap death films from the Saw retrospectives. <laughs> yes, and I also enjoy Pee Wee's Big Adventure and the the Rube Goldstein breakfast making machine. So Goldberg, Goldberg. Not Goldstein. But Stuart, I know you're the subtext guy. Why is it that when the meek woman ever tries to empower herself and use her powers, she starts bleeding? There's got to be some subtext in there about menstruation and, and female empowerment. Oh, wow. Am I the only one that went there, Stuart? Like the psychic nosebleed thing, like that, that's a common thing in comics. Whenever you're really using your powers, you get the nosebleed. But maybe I've been listening to Stewart's reviews too much. That's where I went with that moment. Hey, I didn't say that. Don't give that one to me. <laughs> you're just the subtext guy, though. You're, you're always looking for the hidden meanings. I didn't <laughs> say castration ever. <laughs> no, menstruation, menstruation. Oh, I misunderstood you. Uh, you know, if you're asking me to write the paper, I'll, I'll bullshit it. I'll BS it. <laughs> But I'm not going to do it for Fantastic Four. No, this movie's too lazy for me to try. I'm sorry, but... She's a giant vagina. No, I don't know. Let's <laughs> let's move on. So... Hosted by our fantastic movie reviewers, Stuart. Hosted by our fantastic movie reviewers. Hosted by our fantastic movie reviewers. Hosted by our fantastic movie reviewers, Stuart. Jacob and Arnie.